Who were you before you lost your wild self? That's what we're helping you explore on the Tend Her Wild podcast. Through questions and tools around how best to listen to your inner voice, rewild ourselves, and live the most authentic life where we thrive instead of survive. I'm Betsy. And I'm Kate. And we're so glad you've joined us for this episode. everyone and welcome to today's episode. We're thrilled to have a special guest today, Rebecca Ryan. Rebecca wakes up every day hell-bent on making the world a better place for future generations. She's a top 50 futurist, economist, best-selling author, and keynote speaker. Rebecca empowers bold and ambitious futures for her clients as she walks them through the foresight experiences that produce future-ready participants with a future-focused plan. A graduate of Drake University and the Strategic Foresight Program from the University of Houston and a member of the Global Association of Professional Futurists, we are thrilled to welcome Rebecca. Hello, Rebecca. Yay, Rebecca. Welcome. Hi, Kate. Hi, Betsy. It's great to be with you both. So great to be with you. And I've had the great fortune of working with you, Rebecca, for the past several months on a project and have just been so inspired by your work and how you are leading as a female uh, in this world and helping us look to the future. So really excited to have this conversation with us today. Well, it's great to be and with I have you to, and with your listeners. I have to tell you, Rebecca, that when Kate told me we were going to interview a futurist, I was like, what is a futurist? I don't know this. So would you tell us what a futurist is and you know how you work with people to prepare for the future? Of course. So most people know what a historian is. They study the past and journalists are the professionals who help us interpret what's happening now with mm. the news cycle telling the truth about what's going on and futurists. So if historians work in the past and journalists work in the present, futurists, professional futurists like me, help people understand what's likely to be coming and how they can be future ready. So in my case, I work with uh, a lot of communities, public sector and public sector adjacent organizations and some companies to help them figure out trends and base plans that are going to give them the most advantage in the future. So um, this is this is really counterintuitive in the United States. In other countries, there are many, many, mm. many colleges and universities that do programs in this. In the country of New Zealand, for example, the prime minister requires every federal agency every three years to apply foresight to their plans. But here in the United States, we haven't done foresight at the federal level since the 1980s. So um, between- Why do you FDR, think that is? Yeah, I'm curious. Is that? I think what happened is, um, so between FDR and Carter, there were futurists working everywhere. But, you know, so between like the late 1920s and the 1970s, there were futurists throughout the White House. But then it's really common when the other party gets elected into office, they sort of take their forearm and sweep everything that was on the desk into the mm. dustbin. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what happened. Well, we could have used a little futurist action over the past couple of years. Yes. I did feel you, like. I'm curious, did you see, um, I mean, clearly, 
hard to predict a pandemic, but were you sensing that something was coming? Something this global and big? Yeah, yeah, it's a a wonderful question. So one of the things we, we as futurists do is we are constantly listening for weak signals. And the public health community had been saying for years that it wasn't a matter of if, it was a matter of Mm -hmm. when we would have a pandemic. So did I predict coronavirus? Absolutely not. But has it been something that we've been knowing was going to happen eventually? Yes. Mm. And that's that's really the experience we've had in working with you, Rebecca, is as you look at what's coming, your plans need to be in line with that so that you're ready and acknowledging what's ahead and you're you're getting you're being proactive that it's just a a proactive approach to planning and uh, for us I know it's been really insightful just to to work with you and look at at what's coming even though we're looking about seven years out at our growth and where it's coming from and so it's um it's a really interesting and important um, outlook so would would you share with us a little bit about how you grew up? Yeah, so this is the this is we're going to be yeah. historians and the psychologist on staff here. Like, tell me about your first ten years. <laughs> but this is actually a question we ask all of our guests because it always seems like there's a through line of, you know, what led you to become a futurist and be so interested in motivating people for something better. Like, what what was happening in those first ten years that might have like predicted that this is where you were going to be at some point in your life. Well, let's discover the through line together because it's, I think it's sometimes hard to look at your own biography and figure that out. But um, my biological mother was 19 years old when she had me. I was born in Green Bay, Wisconsin, Mm -hmm. home of the Green Bay Packers. Go Pack. (laughs) And um, she decided to, you know, give me up for adoption. I hate that expression, uh, Mm. give give me up. But I was adopted by a couple who were in their late 40s, German Lutherans. They weren't able to have their own kids. They had adopted one other boy um, from a different, from a foster family. And so my older brother, Ron, and I grew up together and we were raised in West Bend, Wisconsin, which is a company town, home of the West Bend Company, uh, Mm. formerly Pots, Pans, Popcorn Poppers, Bread Makers. My dad worked there for 33 years. So, Mm. um, I, you know, I grew up in a company town, small community, and, um, was in a very sheltered environment. My my adoptive parents were extremely religious and I was allowed to be with um, my parochial school or church friends. I was allowed to be with my mom's family. She had seven brothers and sisters all who lived close by. So I was raised with 13 cousins, but I wasn't allowed to go too far beyond mm. that, um, that sort of boundary line because that would have oh. been dangerous. Um, so yeah, those are kind of my first 10 years. So pretty much when we've talked about this, you know, this podcast is all about rewilding, which we define as moving beyond the box, right? Like all these boxes that we can get conditioned into, and then we lose who we really are. We don't ever have an opportunity to know who we are. So what you're describing to me is that, you know, there's a pretty narrow box, right? Like of who you could be with, how you could think about things. So it does feel like that's a big through line to you now envisioning and imagining like the future, what could be, right? 
Thank you for the um, therapy. Your bell. <laughs> That's what I do. <laughs> Excellent. But, you know, I think the other thing is, is um, I, I feel like a walking nature versus nurture experiment, too, because mm. I was really painfully aware that that my adoptive family weren't my people. I remember mm. being in the first grade, so six or seven years old. And into our church came, uh, oh, uh, and we were predominantly white church, a very um, conservative, homogenous community in Wisconsin. And I remember this family that I really loved. Um, They were, they had uh, three kids, all teenagers, two girls and a boy. They seemed to be really good friends. They were always kind of laughing on their way into church, which was the opposite of my family. Uh, There was always sort of a storm cloud over my family. And and uh, they, one of the girls brought with her to church one day an African-American guy. And mm. I had never seen a person of color before. And after they walked by, I said to my mom, like, wow. And she made a very judgmental comment. And immediately I knew, like, wow. that's not right. What she's saying is not right. And come to find out when I met my my birth mom, when I turned 40, I was able to find the original papers that she had submitted um, to go along to my adoptive family and to the social worker who was handling my adoption. And the very last question on the last page of like a 17 page form was, do you have any wishes for the family who adopts your child? Mm. And she had three wishes. One was that they would like dogs. The second one was that they would be Baptist to this day. My biological mom, Diane, is like, I'm not sure why I wrote that down. (laughs) Um, Mm. And then, but the third thing was they shouldn't be prejudiced. And I just think. 19 year old girl. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Beautiful. What a gift to have those wishes down. I mean, you found them later in life, obviously, but that's that's so fascinating. It explained a lot. You know, yeah. she's a person who her dad was always writing letters to the editor about federal policy. And she herself is a person who has always stood with, you know, workers and the little guy and the marginalized. And when I, you know, when we met, I came out to her right away as a lesbian. And I mean, I was married at the time and um, she didn't blink. You know, mm. she was so different from my adoptive wow. family. So, so you really grew up. Maybe I mean, at six or seven, if you were picking up on this, you really grew up maybe not feeling like you were in the right place. No, I mean, I wasn't in the right. It wasn't the right place for me as a child, but it was the place that my adoptive mother specifically felt like. I think it was about safety and it was also about control. She has some mental illness. Yeah. So when did you first start to step out of the box? I mean, early on, you sensed, I don't know if these are my people. How did you start to make some moves to, you know, figure out who your people were or who you were? Well, there are so many of those moments, right? I bet, I mean, all of your guests yeah. could, could cop to having many of those. But one of the first ones was um, I had five jobs in four years after I graduated from Drake. And my and that alone was that was unusual at the time i mean my parents you know my dad 33 years at one company i mean they just thought i was hanging myself every time i would go to a different <laughs> a different position but um then i decided to start my own 
company. That was 25 years ago now. But what happened was I saw, I was really interested in generational change. I was, I've always been really interested in these long arcs of trends. And I saw a speaker, a, a male speaker do a talk on generations and he was rumpled. He wasn't good at like really connecting. There was, it was a live audience and a couple of remote audiences. It was for a telecommunications company that was his client. And I thought, I know exactly how much money this guy made to do this talk. Mm. And I could do this twice as good as mm. he could. So that Fire was in my the belly. First, yeah. yeah, that was my first big, like, uh. I can do this moment. Yeah. So you've had your company for 25 years. I know we just turned 25 on April. Congratulations. That's a big deal. It is a big deal. And it, you know, starting at a time when there probably weren't a lot of female founders in your circles. I didn't even have like a sick code. I remember like, you know, that like filling out your next codes, um, information. I was like, what am I, you know, like Mm. generational something or another anyway. Yeah. Yeah. So this passion to be able to work with the future, um, why is it so exciting to you? I mean, it's really interesting because as a, I'm, you know, meditation, yoga, psychologist, teacher, I'm always like trying to land people in the present moment. Um, And yet, like, I understand the pull to be able to predict the future. I think in some ways it gives us all safety and security. So I'm curious, like, why is it such a burning passion for you that you, you know, this is what kind of drives you forward is this understanding the future. Where does, where does that come from? I want to take two, I want to answer that in two parts. The first is, um, Kate, you're an attorney, so you probably know this um, concept of intergenerational equity. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, the idea that current generations should not make decisions that harm future generations. Mm. And I take that really seriously. That is why I do this work. Mm. So when I'm doing long range plans, I'm not thinking about Kate or Kate's kids or even Kate's grandkids. I'm thinking about the generations Kate's never going to even meet, but are her progeny. So how do you think really long term? It's kind of that um, Native American concept of the seventh Mm -hmm. generation. Yes. Right. But I want to yes. I want to push back a little bit too, Betsy, because um, I'm a Zen master mm. and a teacher, and I don't think there's anything at odds about being a futurist and being in the present. I think we run into ourselves when we the future or past distract us. Mm. But if the three of us are taking time together to be present with actual trends that are likely to be true in the future, and we're trying to build the best possible plan um, that will be of benefit to future generations. I'm not in conflict about that at all. That's about being very intentional with the present moment. Yeah, Yeah. I love that. I really love that. And, you know, I often will say that when we get too far into the future, if we're Uh, pontificating in our mind about it, it can create anxiety. But what I'm hearing from you is like, actually, if we're really mindful in the moment, what we're doing is creating literally a better future by understanding the trends in this present moment. So they feel different. Yeah, I think the energetic tone is different because 
when people think of the past or the future, it's often with a, um, a worrisome energy or a regretful energy, you know, like, oh, I should yesterday when that person cut me off in traffic, I should have X, Y, Z, W, you know, you get into that story making mind. And that's where the suffering is. It's not real. It's not happening anymore. The same thing can happen with the future. You can get into worry mind and start making a story, some crazy narrative that usually features you as the lead actor or actress. <laughs> um, and those kinds of that, that kind of monkey mind is not useful. Yeah. Well, I know it's reduced some of my anxiety as we've done this for our community because we're, feels like we're kind of taking some control over our future and writing our own story. Uh, right on. Yeah. Mm-hmm. A little tip to the little nod to maybe what's coming. That's um, right. <laughs> you know, we've, Betsy and I have talked with other women about kind of this idea that the feminine is rising and the need for, uh, more female leadership in in work in all industries, and there's all sorts of articles right now about how women have stepped up during this during the pandemic and during this time to really bring those soft skills that are now, in my opinion, the hard skills um, and the necessary skills of leadership. So, you recently wrote a piece on LinkedIn in honor of Madeline Albright, and you said. And I quote you, I heard Madeline Albright say in front of 12,000 HR leaders, there is a special place in hell for women who do not help other women. (laughs) What was that moment like? Well, this was this was probably 15 or 20 years ago, and she got in big trouble when she said it in front of a microphone when Hillary was in the primary against, um, you know, Bernie Sanders and and she was kind of. I think intimating. I mean, it was a it was a well known line of hers. It was a well loved line of hers. But in the, that context, it made it sound like she was anti Bernie. And if you if you were a woman and you voted for Bernie, you were going to hell. Which mm. I don't think she meant. <laughs> no. um, but I what when I heard her say it, she was talking about her time as Secretary of State and her time in the United Nations and how few women there were and how they had created a women's caucus and they would meet to talk about what their countries could do together or sometimes to commiserate. How could they help amplify each other? What could they do to help support each other? And that was very dear to her. I mean, Madeleine Albright was a relationship builder. Um, mm, she yeah. believed in good relationships. She believed in being direct. Um, she, you know, she cared about being f- friendly with people. She didn't always have to be adversarial, but you also didn't want to cross her. Um, <laughs> so I think for her, this was just a reflection on how she chose to operate her life. And I, I also frankly think it paved the way for Hillary Clinton to say women's rights are human rights and human rights are women's rights. And that is also true. Yes. I think Madeleine Albright is a true wild woman. Agreed. So authentic. You always knew what, you know, she said what she meant and she meant what she said. Um, And she, she was in, you know, she stepped out of a box in a big way in her role, uh, you know, such historical significance. So would you agree with that, Rebecca? Do you think she's a wild woman? I think she is a wild woman. I mean, this is, I'm going to be really vulnerable here, but when I was going through like the first heavy lift of therapy, um, after my childhood and trying to, um, trying to make sense of my childhood and trying to 
develop an independent perspective um, from this highly controlling and um, mental mental illness environment that I was in, I, I would sometimes pretend that Madeleine Albright was really my mom. Like I would oh, think, love that. What would, Me too. what would be different if I she had that. been my mother? Oh. I love that. And what'd you come up with? Well, the first thing I thought was her daughters probably have a beef with her. Like, I mean, all daughters <laughs> be have beefs with their mom, right? <laughs> they do, exactly. right? Yeah. Yep. It's part of but, the process. Right. But what I, what I think would have been different is my hunger to explore the world would have been supported and not, you know, tamped down. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I would have become fluent in the languages that I was studying. I, I can speak a little bit of French, German, Hungarian, I'm, my English, you be the judge. But um, I think there would have <laughs> been fine, a lot. Rebecca. <laughs> so far, so good. Um, but no, I think, you know, I would have been a more global citizen and who knows, you know, maybe I, I had graduated with degree undergraduate degrees in international relations and economics, and maybe I would have chosen a path of diplomacy. I, I applied to the CIA and then I chickened out when they Mm. came back with their, it's time to have a physical, um, request, you know, like moving ahead in the process. So I don't know, maybe I would have had the guts to actually do it. I can totally see you as a CIA. But I also think of everything you described, you know, I would be a person of the world. And it's like, you, you, you've done all this, right? That despite mm-hmm. it might, might have been more of a cat fight getting there. But you, like you've, you've, you've stepped into all of those things, it seems like. Yeah, I guess I guess I have. Um yeah, I yeah. mean, I did play yeah. professional basketball in Europe. I did study in Budapest and in Germany. Um, I do travel, I think, is such a magical thing. You know, oh, you don't agreed. come home the same person as you Changes leave. you. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, we definitely, we, Kate and I, think of you as a, a major change agent. And you have this great TED Talk where you said, quote, the heart is where all the shift happens. And I love this. In fact, the last podcast we released was all about making hard decisions from the heart. And we're both firm believers in like that being the true north in many ways. Um, So how do you take that concept of the heart is where all the shift happens into this work you do and how you're helping people shift perspectives? So I really love this question. Mm. Um, the, the two things that feel true about my vocation as a futurist and feel true in my Zen practice are the job of a futurist is much like the job of a Zen teacher, and that is to remove fear. Mm-hmm. And the best way I know how to do that is to help people connect to something beyond themselves. Yes. Because when we're afraid, we, we're feeding a story about somehow either being less or losing something or being threatened, which is, you know, 99 times out of 100, that's a paper tiger. It's not a real tiger. Right. Um, so when we help somebody connect, for example, in, in our work with Kate, we're trying to connect to the like today's college students who are going to be tomorrow's up and coming leaders 
what kind of a community do we want people to have when they graduate from college, when they decide to move their family here? You know, we're trying to make a connection to generations who will come after us. Because if if we can do that for leaders, there is a natural selflessness and an ego drop. The ego just mm. drops out. You know, when people yeah. start thinking about how this is going to impact their kids and their grandchildren, something bigger comes into play. So I think it's about helping people connect to something bigger. Um, their families are an easy one, but helping them connect to a higher purpose, helping them connect to the natural environment. Um, Otto Sharmer has said, and I, I feel this is true as well, the three big disruptions that need to be healed are our disconnections from ourselves. Yeah. So that would be that yep. spirit work uh, or connection to a higher purpose or whatever it is. The second, our disconnection from others. This is how we create in-groups and out-groups. This is how any kind of ism becomes systemic. And the third major disruption that we have to put back together is our connection to the natural world. Yeah. To know yeah. that- yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the trees are breathing us and we're breathing the trees. It is an open. Yeah, there's system. research now that shows that, right? Yep. The entanglement of the natural world and all of us. And it's so interesting to me in the work we've done together, the young people we've talked to completely understand that and prioritize that. I mean, I see that in my own children. You see that in your kids. The 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 world around them, the environment, the they understand that 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 is a priority. It is, it is so essential to everything else. It's nothing else matters if we can't get that right. So that reconnection to nature, I think um, that maybe some generations have moved away from, I, f I have hope that our younger generations are reconnecting to that. Do you see that? Oh, I don't, I haven't looked really to see. Um, but what I do know is that when you do connect to the natural rhythm of the day, your eyes soften and you're able to take in more. Your heart rate goes, yeah. excuse me, your heart rate goes down. Um, you can think more clearly. I mean, just looking off into the sky oh, for five yes. minutes a day. It's magic. Yep. Yeah. So, Rebecca, I love um, sort of this spiritual perspective, if I can call it that, or this broader perspective you have of life, you know, connecting to self, connecting to others, connecting to nature. And since we've started talking, what I've been so curious about is as a futurist, if intuition is a part of this. So, you know, if you, as a meditator, that's one of the things that really comes online is intuition. And is that a part of your work or is it you know, more analytical left brain looking at trends. I'm just curious how these two things meet or if they do meet. It depends on the client. So for some clients, they want to go through foresight training. You know, they want to learn to think like a futurist. Other clients just want to do the process. That's what we're doing with Kate and her team. Um, but when we take people through the curriculum to think like a futurist, the first thing we work with is how well people notice because that's a key, mm. key skill for futurists is to have a really wide range of vision, to have really deep sensory perception, to be able to pick up on those weak signals. And how do you do that? 
we make people sit quietly. We do a series mm. of exercises, um, one of which is uh, a form of seated meditation. We do uh, another exercise is the 10 minutes sitting outside without a phone, just noticing what can you notice. A third exercise to help people tap into that deeper knowing is to interview a child. Uh, that. These are the camps you do, right? Yeah. And we're, we're not doing camp in the same way anymore. We just were not, it was a lot of effort for us without a lot of payoff. Um, but yeah, we used to run a futurist camp and now we just do it as custom programs when executive teams want to learn this stuff. We do sort of customized camp. Mm. And do you see, it, it's got to be fun to see the shifts that happen for people um, that maybe this is really out of their comfort zone. It is fun to see um, the the depth of the conversation changes so much. Um, and, and the most powerful of the techniques I just mentioned is definitely the interview a child. Mm. Um, because for people who get to a certain age, they might not have small kids at home anymore, or maybe their grandkids aren't yet born, or they don't have access to them. But when you make it their homework assignment and you give them really good, juicy questions. So you literally have them ask a child. Yeah. Yes, we have oh, an interview I was a just, child. Okay. Wow. Yeah, it's uh, we we encourage them to find somebody like you know in their teens or younger. Um, six is about the cutoff because um, six year olds can start to have, you know, they're at the age of reason and they kind of understand what the future is, even though for them the future might be turning ten. Um, <laughs> but it's it's just a useful it's a really useful thing to do to interview a kid and. It, again, it helps them slow down. It helps them see through others' eyes. And that is key to being a good futurist is to be able to know that there are multiple ways of knowing, there are multiple yeah. ways of seeing, and the future is just something we work with in this process. It's really yeah. beautiful. It's beautiful. So I feel like having you online in terms of right now, uh, I'm like this incessant, curious person. I'm like, okay, what's coming down the pikes? Can you give us the top five things that the future is like, do you, can you give us some trends that would help our listeners and just help us as human beings um, be more conscious or be more prepared? Well, the first thing I would suggest is that you know, there's a huge mental health crisis yeah. happening right now yes, among our is. kids, mm -hmm. among us grownups. And Arthur Brooks has done at Harvard, he's done a bunch of research on happiness. And he says that when students come to his door and say, give me some advice, like I want to find my purpose, he tells them to sit quietly with themselves holding that question for 15 minutes a day for for 90 days and it'll be there and I think that's the number one thing yeah I can I can tell you some things to watch for and I will but the first thing I would invite everyone to do is to make themselves comfortable you know light a candle turn the lights down put on some noise canceling headphones and start with being with yourself for five minutes speak in just, my language mm, you are speaking yeah. my language that's and that's just, it the only thing you have to focus on is lengthening your exhale. That's yeah. the only thing you have to do. I feel like calm that all. I yeah. teach that all the time. It calms the nervous system. Yeah, slow yeah. down. We've all exhale. just been so. The last two years of we've talked about the vagus nerve and how everything is. Yeah. You know, so we we have we have collective work to do to yeah. collectively bring that back. 
down. Yeah, in the Zen lineage, I'm a part of um, we it's a it's a warrior tradition of Zen. It's very embodied Zen. So for us in in our tradition, you know, the body isn't just what carries the head around. And we don't use the term mindfulness. If we were going to use a term, we would say bodyfulness. And that's mm -hmm. what we're doing when we, as you said, when you lengthen your exhale, you calm your nervous system down, you let yourself literally come back into yourself. And that the the vagal nerve everything we're learning about how the body is really where the action is yeah uh, but we have forgotten how to be like just right now for listeners can you feel your own heartbeat in your body right yeah you can start there it's so good so good and i love i, I can say that being in a Zoom room with Rebecca, you bring this without overtly bringing it. Does that make sense? You have. Yeah, I never this, say, let's all take a long, deep breath together. <laughs> you don't, but you. It's your presence. Your presence yeah. is enough for people to, to breathe and to feel op you open people up. And there is something about the way you guide conversations that your Zen you know, skills come through. I, I will say I, I've experienced that. And I don't know that people know exactly, you know, where it's coming from, but they definitely sense it. So it's been a beautiful addition to what can be very, you know, challenging work, a lot of, you know, egos and, and things to, to, to reckon with, but the way you do it means everything. So I've appreciated that. Thank you, Kate. And, you know, that's the thing, right? Like to remove fear. So and, and part of that is to remove ego. But I think we all know that emotions are contagious. So if you come into a meeting already with all of your breath, like in your collarbones, mm -hmm. oh, my God, you're already starting 10 yeah. feet behind yeah. the start line. So just taking that one you know, long, slow exhale before you pick up the phone, before you get on a Zoom call, keeping your feet planted, yeah. knowing where your feet are at all times. I know these things might sound might not sound like very futuristic to those of you who are like, what is this futurist? She's cracking me up because this has <laughs> nothing to do with the future, but I'm telling you it has everything to do with the future because it has to do with our ability to sense and to yeah. be completely be fully yeah. sensory. Yep. Yeah, it's beautiful. So in closing, Rebecca, I'm curious what you'd like to leave our listeners with from your um, deep awareness of the future. And also, we'd love for you to tell our listeners where they can find you and what's coming up. Yeah, well, um, I'm going to I'm going to fold a couple things together here. Beautiful. I know that, you know, we talked about women who run with the wolves Um as in the in the run up to the show, we haven't talked about it today. Yeah, actually, but, can I can I go there though with you? Yeah, please do it. Yep. So, you know the book, and you know mm -hmm. that they in the book they talk about how there are a few precious doors into the world of the wild woman. So we ask every guest what their door has been, and there are, if you have a deep scar, that is a door. If you have an old old story, that is a door. If you love the sky and the water so much, you can almost not bear it. That is a door. 
And if you yearn for a deeper life, a full life, a sane life, that is a door. So which door do you think you took into your life as a wild woman? I put a check box, check mark next to if you yearn for a deeper life, a full life, a sane life. Yeah. Yeah. You're a seeker. Yeah. So what was, what is your perspective about, you know, that, that book and, and the wild woman archetype? I I just re-listened to it last year and I'm, I turned 50 a few weeks ago. And so I, I re-listened to the book in my 49th year and a, a dear friend of mine, who's also just a truth teller, she said, pay attention to the seventh year. So at my 49th year, I was at my seventh year of my seventh year, you know, mm, <laughs> seven times seven. Yeah. And so, um, I, I re-listened to this and you know how sometimes you read something and you're like, I know that there's truth in this, but I'm going to have to cogitate. I'm going to have to sit with this a little bit more to see how it wants to come through me. So I really am grateful for these doors that you've listed here and to have the opportunity to think about them. Um, So, you know, the, the notion of wanting a deeper life, just being so aware as a youngster, like this isn't it for me that for, you know, the the way I was raised, um, it didn't, it didn't give me the food that my body and being really needed, but Mm -hmm. I've had so many opportunities to find it and then to really dig in. Um, and now as I've turned 50, um, I'm coming face to face in a really beautiful way with some of these deep scars. I'm in a relationship now where I feel more comfortable being vulnerable. I'm in a life stage where I don't know what happens at 50, but I just have fewer. Start speaking truth. Yeah. (laughs) I know know that. Yeah. And what a gift that is. What a gift. So I think I'm working through each of these doors in one way or another, but it's not intimidating like it maybe was even a year ago. Now it's like, bring it on. Let's do it. (laughs) We're going all out now. I love that. So where can our listeners find you and uh, connect with you online? RebeccaRyan.com. I am not on FB. I am on Twitter and on LinkedIn as well. Great. Great. We have loved this conversation and thank you for sharing yourself, being vulnerable today and sharing your life's work and aspects of your life with us to help us understand. Yeah, such deep wisdom. I could talk to you for another hour. So I much know. I want to know, but we'll, we'll stay in touch. Thank you for the good you're doing in the world. It's so important that we hear each other's story because somewhere out there are people, women, men, people who are not identified as binary who are saying me too and that is a great gift thank you yeah thank you for that thanks rebecca and now the amazing singer songwriter lissy morris with wild west thanks for joining us today if you like this podcast please subscribe rate and review come back and rewild with us again next week